Let's turn to Psalm 17 and uh, begin our work here. I, I told John Lachlan, y'all hug his neck before he leaves. Um, I had the wild and crazy idea of preaching Psalm 17 and 18 together. Uh, that's 65 verses. Then I found out John was coming. I said, well, I'm not going to do that. You know, John, John don't want to shock his system coming back in with these three-hour sermons. And uh, so y'all can thank John for that. And God used him to turn me away from such a long-winded sermon, hopefully. Although there's a lot of meat in these 15 verses we will cover. So uh, I'm, I'm going to do my best. But the reason I could, could have combined them is that really Psalms 16, 17, and 18 flow so nicely together. I think they were written, though they're not one psalm, they were written in the same season of David's life. I told Aaron last night, this is the longest passage on the, the, um, the struggle that David had with Saul in the Psalms, consecutive passage, especially Psalm 18, which is the most in-depth biblical record outside of Samuel, uh, outside of Samuel, the most in-depth biblical record dealing with the struggle with Saul. And uh, he recounts it very vividly in Psalm 18. But in Psalm 17, what we see is the prayer that David prayed in the time of conflict with Saul. It's a prayer <clears throat> that, if on, on the face of it, looks arrogant. It's one of those psalms where you come, it's one of those places in Scripture, kind of like Job. You know, Job goes before the Lord, and he cries out uh, based on his innocence. You know, I haven't done anything to deserve, physically speaking, I've done no sin to deserve the, the, the things that I'm facing in my life. Even, even the writer of Job says Job was a righteous man. How do we make, uh, make that fit in our minds, right? Because we know from the, from the overwhelming witness of Scripture that no one is righteous. No, not one. We've all gone out of the way. We are all sinful. And Psalm 51 tells us that doesn't begin at some point in our life. It begins at conception. That we were put together in the darkness of our mother's womb as rebels against God. In our very basic DNA is this instinct to go against God's call in our life. That's the definition of sin. To see the mark and to go the other way. That's, that, was, that, was our, that is our predisposed from conception mode of operation. But yet, in this psalm, like in Job and like in some other places, we see a, someone who is saying they are innocent, they are righteous. Now, I don't want to explain it all the way, but I do want to let the cat out of the bag a little early here so you don't spend the whole sermon going, uh-oh, what, what has he done? He's gone off the tracks. I believe that what David is doing here is declaring his innocence in this specific situation with Saul. Think about it. David didn't lust after the, the reign as king. What was David doing when God chose him to be the king of Israel? Was he running after Saul, going behind his back, playing some kind of conspiratory game? Was he trying to usurp the authority? What was he doing? What? He was tending sheep. <laughs> he wasn't even at home when God came looking, right? 
He wasn't sitting by the door waiting on Samuel the prophet saying, yeah, today's the day. Urgent mail's getting here, Dad. What is that, son? Well, I'm going to be made the king of Israel. I'm going to be anointed in your presence. That wasn't David's heart. David was obeying his father, tending sheep faithfully over the little things in life. And lo and behold, he comes in. You know, they went through all the list of the brothers, right? From oldest down to the youngest. And, And every time one would come before Samuel, what did he say? This must be the one. In his heart, he'd say, look at this. This is a fine, strapping young man. He looks like a king. This is God's anointed. And the spirit would say, no. He'd go to the next, and the next, and the next. He got to the end of the line. There's no more sons. He looks at Jesse and says, you don't have any more boys. Oh, yeah, well, we have this one son. He's young, and he's kind of ruddy complexioned. And we, I mean, he's not the king. Maybe you, I mean, you almost hear Jesse excuse. Maybe you just were supposed to come for dinner, right? We got a good meal here. Let's just eat and enjoy one another's company. No sin for this boy. David comes in from the field, and before he even comes in, the Spirit of God witnesses to Samuel, this is my chosen one. He was minding his own business. He wasn't out trying to usurp the throne. He was being a teenage boy, obedient to his father, following after God's own heart. That's the witness of Psalm 17. If you look at verse 8, and we're going to get there in the exposition, but look at verse 8. That's the famous verse, right? Keep me as what? The apple of your eye. This relationship that David had founded on faith in God as the covenant keeper began as a child. And he's even now able to say, I'm the apple. I'm the center of God's eye. I told you. I warned you, right? It sounds arrogant on the face of it. I mean, would you say that about yourself? Let's be honest. Say, I'm I'm the apple of God's eye. How can he make such a claim? He says, I'm the apple of your eye, in a sense, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wing. What a, what a beautiful picture of a chick being gathered under the wing of the hen, protected against all of its enemies, camouflaged from the attack of the enemy. Well, let's dig in here. There are four sections. This is one of those psalms that breaks down quite nicely into a uh, ABBA um, uh, chiasm. Okay, so you have the first uh, two verses, which are that first uh, cry here. And then the last verses, verses 13 and 15, mirror those. And the two in the center focus on two distinct things. First, the enemies, and then the character of God. So you have a chiasm here that encloses. That's why I would say 17 is not part of 18. But I think they're written about the same event, so they fit nicely together. And you'll see that 17 also points us back to 16 because it tells us that David is finding uh, his help from the right hand of God, which Dave preached uh, last week about who is seated at the right hand of God. So let's read the text together. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence... From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. 
You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Pointing back to Psalm 16. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence. My deadly enemies surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your own hand, O Lord. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. There's a little discrepancy in the text here in the original. There's a question about what we should read this. The ESV translates it, You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. One of the earlier manuscripts reads, As for your treasured ones, you fill their womb. So we'll get to that in the, te- in the text. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. There are four points here. First, we see a cry of innocence. A cry of innocence. David calls out from the standing of innocence. It's both in his Immediate circumstance, he is innocent, but I think it's a little deeper than that also. If you remember James 5, verse 16, hold your place in Psalm, and let's read what the brother of Jesus writes in James 5, verse 16. He says, talking about prayer for the sick, after they have called the elders to come to the sick person, they've they've confessed his sin, and now he's prayed for healing. Look what it says in verse 16, therefore... Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Or the prayer of a righteous man avails much as it is working. Some texts might read. So we see that the righteous man's prayer is heard by God. Similar to Psalm 17 where David says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. This is the cry of a man who is righteous, who is innocent. He's innocent in the situation. He didn't try to seek out Saul to take his life and take the throne away by some some, uh, subverse activity. It was handed to him by God. Now he's facing great persecution. This isn't some day or two-day event, remember. Years and years of facing death at the hands of Saul is his plight. For doing what? Obeying God. Minding his own business, tending to sheep, doing what God had called him to do, being obedient to his father, then being anointed the future king of Israel and placed in the court of Saul 
to attend to Saul's every need and face javelin spears and, and face the attack of Saul's army and the jealous rage of a king, he's saying to God, I'm innocent. I'm just. I've done nothing wrong. Even under intense pressure, I've not caved in and started to seek the life of the king. I'm still serving. I'm still being faithful, right? Hear my cry because I'm innocent on this account. But I think it's deeper than that. I think it's a step deeper. I think we see here the foreshadowing of the future teachings of the Scripture, which I think the Hebrew people knew. It's not just on his own actions that he's innocent. No. It's on account of the one who would be his greater son that he is innocent. Why is he innocent? Why can he call himself just? Why can James say that someone is a righteous man? Because of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. The truth is, David, looking to the future, looking back at the promise of God, the promises of God were clear from Genesis forward that God would send one who was guiltless, who was perfect. When he gave the law, he told the people, you can't keep the law, but there's one coming, a greater prophet than Moses, who will keep the law. They knew from time early in Israel's history and recounted to their children and their children's children the faithfulness of God to his covenant. And so David is not just innocent in his daily activity with Saul, but he's righteous, counted righteous, because he has placed his faith in the promises of God. He has a standing before God in the coming Savior. It's no different than us. Some of you in here have faced similar situation. Now, Probably none of us have faced life-threatening situation, okay? But some of you have lost jobs. I know some people who have faced, because they did the right thing, they've lost jobs. I, and you're here, and you know who you are. There are others who have lost marriages for standing for what is right. They've done the right thing, and they've still, they face divorce and lose their spouse. There's some of you ha who have lost communication with your loved ones, whether it be children or, or mothers and fathers, because you simply lived righteously and they refused to have anything to do with you. And you are like David, standing before God saying, Hear me. Deliver me. I I'm, I'm righteous. Not just innocent in this case, but also I'm standing in your son. I'm trusting on his, in his word. Here we hear the, the cry of a sincere desperation that comes up from one who trusts in God's providence, but at this point in his life is facing severe persecution. Look what he says. Give ear to my prayer. Why? Because my lips are free of lies. I'm not deceitful. I'm being honest. I'm being transparent, David is saying. Hear me. I'm not putting up phony religious phraseology. I'm speaking from my heart. Hear me when I cry. It's no different than a child who comes to a father. Hurting, broken, skint knees and all. Saying, God, Daddy, hear what happened to me. He's not so much looking for immediate resolution as he's looking for the comforting hand of a daddy. It's come to God. So I ask you, a question for you today. Wherever you are in life, are you coming to God as a father? Crying out from your position in Christ? 
about any situation saying, hear me. I mean, what a sweet and tender relationship is he represented in Scripture. David's not seeing his persecution as hardness from God, a God who hates me and disapproves of me and so he's punishing me. He sees this as an opportunity for him to draw near to God. Where are you? You're facing trials? Maybe sickness? Maybe divorce? Maybe the loss of a loved one because of a broken relationship? Maybe the loss of a job? Maybe you've, you've been without a job so long you can't even remember the last time you worked. And you say, hey, God, hear me. Are you going to God are you going to the comforts of this world? Are you, are you going to the comforts of this world? Because the second point I'd like to make here is down to verses 13 and 15. Because these two sections match one another. Look what he says in verse 13. He calls, based on his relationship, his righteous relationship in the covenant with the covenant God, he calls on God to act on his behalf. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. This is is not an arrogant prayer. This is a faithful prayer. This is a confident prayer. This is a man who believes what God has promised. I am your God and you are my people. And specifically, David, you're my king. I'm with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. We know he knew that. How do we know it? Practically, we know it. How do we know? When he's standing in Saul's tent and Goliath is on the battlefield, and Saul tries to give him armor and sword and all these things. And I, I just get, don't you children get the picture? I mean, they're standing in this big tent. I mean, this isn't a two-man tent. This is a huge tent. This is the king's tent, right? They're standing in this palace of a tent in an open field with a huge nine-foot giant standing out there making fun of God and God's people. A bunch of cowards down in the trenches Scared they're going to lose their heads if they do anything to confront this giant, right? They're all scared. Grown men. Now this boy, David, comes up. Seeing the situation, volunteers to go and defend God's honor, right? So they take him into Saul's tent. And Saul, who should be the one going out to the battlefield, what does he do, children? Well, since you're going, David, (laughs) let me help you out. What you need is a good coat of mail and a helmet and a sword and this shield right here. Now you can imagine, this is like the, the king's son wearing his clothes. Like you play dress up with your mom's clothes or your dad's clothes from the closet and they're all too big and they like hang way down. You can imagine, David, this thing's probably down below his knees. He can't hardly walk. You know, trust in these things, David. They'll protect you. What does David do? The reason I know that he believes the prayer in 13 through 15 is because he lived it. What did he say? He took them off and he said, these can't offer me protection. The same God that delivered me from the mouth of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from this filthy Philistine too. That's the prayer of verse 13. God, just like you rose up and defended me against the lion and against the bear and against the filthy, uncircumcised Philistine, I'm praying to you to protect me against Saul and against my own countrymen. Arise now and take care of it. It's not an arrogant prayer. It's a confident prayer. So often I got to imagine that God pities us because we come to him as if he has no power. We come before somebody gets a bad diagnosis. What do we do? 
we go and pray as if they're already dead. Now, God, I know you're probably going to let them die. Dave, you heard this kind of stuff, didn't you? <laughs> oh, God, I know he's probably going to die. But just, uh, you know, comfort him as he's dying. The lost guy you live next to, you've been praying for him for years as if he's already in hell. Oh, God, I know you don't want to save Johnny. He's pretty bad. Be merciful to his wife and his children. David didn't pray like that. Because he knew he was standing in the right, with the right man, Christ on his side. He prayed, arise. Take my position. Defend me. We should be praying the same way. We should be having the same confidence in this God. This is not a relationship that's what I'm going to get to in that middle B there. This apple of the eye statement is not unique to David. This confidence comes from believing God and taking him at his word. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, God. It's a confident prayer. From men by your hand, O Lord. What kind of men? Men who trust in this world. Men who trust in the provisions of this world. Deliver me from them. The materialistic surrounding that David faced, even in his day, there were those who were materialist, who trusted in the promises and the gifts of this world. And they counted on their life from these things. Okay? Now that controversial or inquisitive thing we have to do here with is David speaking in verse 14 the second half of verse 14 about the wicked or is he going ahead and talking about his own self he says in the ESV remember in the text you fill their womb with treasure it can also be seen as your treasured ones you fill their womb in other words these people are trusting in material blessings we trust in the fact that you open the womb and give us children and you give us a heritage and you give us the next generation and you do that because you're merciful and you're good and these are our riches not the things of this world but the people that you have given us are our blessing they're our, they're, they're our hope the next generation that they'll carry on the covenant promise is he saying that or is he saying you're you're blessing the wicked with children. Well, I just got to be honest with you. I don't know. <laughs> I know you didn't come to hear that. So I'm going to tell you what I think. But I just got to be honest. I think you can take it either way. In verse 14, it could be that David is saying that the wicked are having children. Their wounds are being opened. They're having more and more children. In other words, the wicked are trusting in the wrong things, And yet you keep giving them another generation. Or he could be saying, the wicked trust in these possessions, but we trust in the gift of a new life. That God, you're blessing our, our existence by a new generation. It could be either one. I side with the fact that he's talking about the wicked. I think if you look at verse 14, I think the 15 is the key. Because 15 shifts dramatically. As for me, you notice the shift in the, the, the text gives us the clue. He shifts subjects. As for me, he, he, he made the change. So 14, I think the whole thing is about the wicked. The wicked are trusting in material possession and they're trusting in the fact that they can have children. 
And so their life's going to continue. Their heritage is going to go on. They're going to pass down the wealth that they amassed to the infants in their houses. As for me, what I'm hoping on is not, in, not a next generation and not the material blessings of this world, but to look at you face to face. The hope of the believer, you're in those struggling times, you've lost, lost confidence in the goodness of God, your hope and your only hope is to look into the face of the good and covenant God through Jesus Christ. That's your only hope. And that was David's only hope. David looked back at the promises of God and then he looked forward as a prophet and said, God will keep his word and I will see God face to face. David saw the Shekinah glory of God, like Moses. It came down and filled the tabernacle. It came down when they, later in his life, when they, when they coronated the temple, uh, it, it, or they began to talk about the temple. They saw God, but they didn't see the fullness of God. That was his hope, to see the fullness of God. Again, like Job, Job's flesh is rotting away. He's dying. As far as he knows, there's no good ending coming, Right? He's on the trash heap. He's cutting himself with charges. What does he say? He says to his, uh, his uh, friend, so-called friends, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to see him. My deliverer, my redeemer, I'll see him. In my flesh, face to face. The hope of the saints in the Old Testament is the same hope that we have in the New, and that is that God is our God, and he has made himself abundantly, freely accessible through His Son, Jesus Christ. Arise on my behalf, God. Defend me with your sword. Take me under your wing. Why? Because my only hope is to see you face to face. So if you're facing divorce, you've gotten that bad diagnosis, or you're losing your relationships because of the righteous stands that you've taken, your only hope is Christ. And if you don't have him, you don't have hope. Your children will fail you. Your riches will run dry. Everything that you can see with your eyes and touch with your hands will disappear. Listen, if the world falls into catastrophic economic times, I don't care if you're Bill Gates. What good is it to be billionaire's status if the money you've got is worthless. God mocks those who put their trust in worldly things. It can be gone that quick. You can wake up one morning and the stock's worth $57 and you can wake up the next and it's worth 15 cents. It can all be gone. But one thing won't ever change. If your hope is in seeing God face to face, He'll never withdraw that from you. So you hold on in that dying marriage. Not for your sake, not for your kid's sake, for God's sake. Hold on. Don't turn it in. Don't give up. Don't walk away. You stand strong in the day of physical failure where your flesh is dying. Stand strong. Cry out to God in hope and in confidence because He cares for you. And He will give you the desire of your heart if it is to see Him face to face. 
whatever your condition. And I don't know all of the specifics, but I can know so many here. And I'm just saying, hold on to him, even when it's hard. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I think there's a double meaning here, not just when he awakes from one night's rest and then wakes up the next morning, but when he awakes from the tomb, that's when he will see God. He knows it. It's like, it's like tomorrow to David. He, he fully expected in anticipation of the fulfillment of God's covenant at any moment. I will be satisfied when I am resurrected with your likeness. That's all my heart longs for. A cry of innocence, a, a, a confidence in eternity. Now, quickly, these two middle paragraphs as we look here. In verses 3 through 5, we see a statement of justice. Now, I've talked about this a good bit. This mirrors Psalm 1, by the way. Some, some people question whether David wrote Psalm 1, but I, you know, the more you study it and the more you look at it, you don't, you don't question it anymore because although the, 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 the uh, subscription above the, the, uh, the psalm doesn't say anything about David, it's introductory. It doesn't say anything about David, but look at verses 3 through 5. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. Again, he's innocent. His sin is covered by Christ and his, his innocence is before God in this specific situation. I've not offended you in any way. You can test me and I have not failed. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Now look at Psalm 1. And you see the mirror. He says that the blessed man is the one who walks in the, not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. If you look at verse 5, His steps have not gone down the paths of the unrighteous, nor have His feet slipped into sin. He's, he's innocent of these things. He is, in a sense, David saying, Lord, I've lived according to the blessed life that you set out before your people. Follow the blessed man's path. I've done that, God. I've placed my confidence in you and in your promise, and I've walked according to your blessings. You're the blessed man along that path. I've not gone the way of the wicked. Again, he's, it's a statement of his justice. God, I've cried out to you from innocence. I have hope, and my confidence is in eternity. Based on the fact that I'm just, now he says, my confidence is in the assurance of God's character. Verses 6 through 12. In these middle verses, he shifts. He talks about the wicked in verses 3 through 5, and then he talks about God's character in verses 6 through 12. When he calls upon God, he's confident God will answer or incline his ear and hear his words. Why? Because he's steadfast in love. That's the character of God. He's steadfast in love. He never forsakes his people. He's steadfast. He's standing firm. He's not 
changing from one day to the next. God is consistent. There's nothing worse in parenting than than figuring out, Alicia, you may have been there with me, than figuring out halfway through the day how inconsistent you've been, right? I know Alicia and I are the only bad parents in the room, so we're going to talk. This is what you get for being an elder's wife and sitting near the front. Sometimes when Alicia's parenting all her children and sometimes when I've been with mine all day, you get halfway through the day, you look back and you think, well, I disciplined, I fussed at them for this, and then I let them do it. Right? And then they, they're doing this other thing, and I just got just in a tirade about it. And it really was this little, I don't know why I did that, because it was so, in your own mind, this is the way I think. It was such a little thing, it wasn't that big a deal. This was a much bigger offense, I just let them get away with that. But then this little thing happened, I just explode. The wrath of daddy, you know. And then, but I, I realized my inconsistency. You see, David, and the good thing about God is he's not like earthly fathers. He's never inconsistent. God's always true. He's steadfast. He's standing firm in his love. He never wavers. He doesn't overlook our unrighteousness. He does something about it. He never he never trains us, and in, in, in his training, he's so harsh that we become angry with him. He doesn't provoke us to wrath, but he's disciplined because he disciplines all those that he loves. You can be confident, as Bruce said, in this. When you come to God confessing your sin, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He's righteous. He's faithful and just. What does that mean? He's steadfast in his love. I don't care what you are doing as his child. He loves you. He loves you. You may not perceive it as love at times. You may struggle under his love at times. But know this. He loves you. He's not like me. He's not inconsistent. He's consistent. So he's calling on God based on his character. He's innocent before God. His confidence is in eternity. He knows his enemies have gone down the way of the wicked, and he has gone down the way of the blessed. And finally, he's confident in God's deliverance because God is of good character. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Incline yourself to hear me, God, because I'm taking refuge at your right hand. Again, this is like 16, as Dave told you. This is a a, a prefiguring of Christ. Christ is at the right hand of God. Hebrews says he has sat down at the right hand of God. And it is from that right hand that pleasures come to us forever. And it is from that right hand that we receive protection in the day of trouble. He is the source of our blessing. He is the source of our protection. He is the embodiment of God's character. He is never changing. And now this intimate term. You say, Carlton, okay, it's great that David could pray this way. That's wonderful, but I'm not David. Listen to me. If you're his child, you are a part of the apple of his eye. It's not a term of endearment only for David. This is a term of endearment for the church. This is a term of endearment for all that Christ gave his life for. 
Do you think that God looks at you differently than he does David? Did it cause Christ more to die for you than it did to die for David? Absolutely not. What is the value of David's life? The value of his life is measured in the gift that it took to purchase his life. Christ, just like yours. So you say, I can't pray like David. Yes, you can. If you're in Christ, your hope and confidence is in him and him alone. You can say, verse 8 is about you. That you are at the apple of God's eye. You are in the center of God's eye. His eyes own you and he sees your ways and he loves you. Hide me now under your wing. I mean, what a, what a beautiful picture. Again, it's not only here, it's in other places. Even our Lord used it of his people in Jerusalem. He, said he looked out over the city of Jerusalem as the end was nearing. And what did he say? I long to gather you. Like a hen does her brood, but you would not come. The heart is steadfast. It's never changing. He sees them in their rebellion and he wants to gather them, but they will not come. We find our refuge under his wing. We find the protection under his wing. Who? Everyone who is in Christ. Why? Because we are the apple of his eye. At the end of all things, when Christ sums it all up, when he comes again, this will happen. 1 Corinthians 15 says, He will take the kingdom and deliver it to his Father at his second coming. And his Father will give it back to him. It's the center. His people are the center of his redemptive plan based on the fact that they are in his Son. So our prayer is just like his prayer. Just like David's. Pray that way. Have confidence in God. Call on Him as one who is dearly loved because He has given His own life for you.